Uh, Father, thank you for your word um, and the way that it challenges us and the way that it builds us up and the way it shows us really and truly who you are and what you have for us tonight. Uh, God, I pray that you'd bless the preaching of the I pray that you would uh, guide us to know you, to love you, um, Lord, to be wrapped and shaped in your love. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive um, the message and uh, the comfort of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Drop that. There we go. No big deal. Um, there was a, a book that came out a few years ago, and I think you actually, some of you actually had to read it for some of your uh, before um, class activities in the summer. It was by a man named Brian Stevenson. He wrote a book called Just Mercy. And he starts the book with the story of him meeting his first death row inmate ever. He says that before he went to law school at Harvard, he'd never really met a lawyer. He'd been studying law and feeling really kind of super disconnected from precedents and trial procedures and constitution and just everything that kind of goes in the law. And he was there. He was at Harvard Law. It was a big deal. But he felt really disconnected from what he was studying. And everyone around him is kind of networking their way, uh, getting flown out to major job interviews like Boston, Los Angeles, New York. And meanwhile, Brian owns like one raggedy old suit. Like he's not playing that game. Um, And even though he's in this prestigious world, this is just not his kind of place. And he can't help but feel intimidated, disconnected, sort of out of focus from what he's studying. Essentially saying, this place is a big deal. And it's awesome to be here, but why am I here? Like, what's my purpose? What's my mission for being at Harvard Law? Until what happens? He says his first summer of law school, he gets an internship with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee in Atlanta, helping people who are on death row get legal defense. And he's kind of low man on the totem pole, so he gets sent out to the prison to go meet with a, a prisoner who's on death row and tell this man uh, that he's not going to be executed that year. Which, I mean, you and I have stuff to worry about. This guy was anxious. So Brian gets there. He stumbles out his words saying, like, they're not, like, not going to execute you this year. And he feels incredibly clumsy in saying this. But to that man, it is like weights fall off his shoulders. And he is overjoyed. I'm not going to be killed this year. Right? And Brian said that in that... As he sees this man, as he speaks with him, as he sees it, this is a guy that could be me. This is a guy with a wife and a kid and friends and is into some of the same stuff that I'm into, but he's on death row and I'm not. And he sees that man get locked back up and he's going away singing a gospel song that he realizes that this is what I'm here to do. Like, this is my purpose. This is my mission. And it comes not because of money or prestige or fear or guilt, but because of what he loves. That he loves justice, he loves mercy, he loves bringing good news to prisoners and defending them. I tell that story because of this. Because I think all of us in this room have asked ourselves at one point or another, why am I here at UNC? Like, I do not always feel super connected to the papers that I'm writing. A guess of mine, <laughs> as I've talked with y'all. I don't always enjoy the tests that I'm taking and the materials that I'm studying. Why am I here? Like, what do I need to be doing to find my, my purpose, my mission? What do I need to be doing to serve God and be a part of His kingdom and to, like, do that well? 
Like, how should I be thinking about school, a career, life after graduation as a Christian? Like, a lot of us have wondered those things and heard the word, I don't know, missional or something along those lines, and maybe not known what to do with it. But I want to suggest to y'all is this night that being missional, that following Jesus on mission, uh, does not have to be incredibly complicated. And it does not have to be all-consuming with your life. But being missional is simply being consistent and connecting what you believe with what you do in every way that you can. That being missional is being who you are in Christ. That when we encounter Jesus, He draws us into His life. We learn to love the things that He loves, to do the things that He does. And this means that we love God and we love our neighbors who are right here around us. And so we enter into His mission in this place with these people. And so tonight, I kind of want to talk about this and clear away some of the things that we might be thinking and draw us more into this, into this mission, into who Jesus is. And so I just want to talk about two things tonight. I want to talk about the motivation for mission, and I want to talk about the means of mission. What's the motivation for mission? What's the means for mission? First of all, the motivation for mission. Look at verses 13 through 16. This is Jesus talking. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You should be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Um, I know this makes... A lot of people are really uncomfortable to talk about judgment. But the reality is that no one in the Bible talks more about it than Jesus. That helping people to escape judgment is a major motivation for Jesus' self-understanding of his mission. And this makes us really uncomfortable, I know, because we love the message of peace and love that Jesus offers. But if you're going to follow him or at least deal with him and try to figure him out from what the Gospels say, then you have to have some categories for God's judgment on sin. For instance, in Luke chapter 11, the very next chapter from this one, Jesus is talking to a group of people and he says, in just kind of an offhand comment, like, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much better will God, who's not evil, give you? Like, his assumption there is that people by nature aren't good. And it's not even the point of what he's saying. It's just an offhanded comment. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes the judgment of the world as though he were a shepherd separating sheep from goats. To the sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. To the goats, he says, Depart from me, you cursed. In John 15, he says, If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Like, whether we believe it or not, Jesus believes that there's a day of judgment coming for the world. And that is not something that he delights in. That's not something he uses against people as a weapon. That means we can't delight in it. That means we can't use it as a weapon. It's his diagnosis, though, of our condition. And it's something that he warns people to escape from if they would save their lives. That ultimately the reality is that no one can run from God. But you can only run to God. That we have this cultural bias that says everyone is basically good and God owes us based on that goodness. But Jesus doesn't seem to possess that same sort of bias. Okay, how can someone who's supposed to be the kindest, most loving person ever talk or think like this? Because the reality of it is, though, that none of us here are kinder than God, wiser than God, more merciful than God, 
more able than God to see into people's hearts and know all the circumstances that have shaped them. None of us here love sinful people more than God or know what people need better than God or are more willing than God to inconvenience ourselves for those who are not as wise or merciful or loving as we are. That if Jesus is who he says that he is and he's God, and that he has a better take on these things than we do. If he's not, then we can discard it. But if he is, then we have to at least listen to him. Think about it like this. If you knew that someone needed a heart transplant to live, and you didn't tell them, that would be horrible. They should at least know, right? If you knew that someone needed a heart transplant and you told them, that would be humane, but it would be bad news. But what if you told someone that they needed a heart transplant and then you offered them your heart? Like, that would be bad news followed by good news. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That God is really the only person qualified to say who does and who doesn't need to repent and what they need to repent of. And if you take the claims of the gospel seriously, then what does Jesus, God made flesh, say about people and repentance? That it's for everyone, especially Christians. Like the mark of a true Christian is not how much you stand in the pit and yell at people. The mark of a true Christian is, how, is not how much scripture they've memorized. It's not how long ago they think the last time they sinned was. Or how kind people think that they are. That the mark of a true Christian is whether or not they've repented to Jesus. To turn to him, to place your life into his hands and to say, accept me based on you. That for all of our good things, for all of our bad things, do we live in a state of dependence and repentance with Jesus? Like, I know that terms like sin, like judgment, like repent can make us squirm, but the reality is that we can't understand the joy that Jesus brings without understanding those things. That we have to understand our pollution and our guilt before God in order to understand and embrace Him. Our sin and our guilt and our shame are just a reality that everyone is dealing with. And if you're interested in understanding yourself or Jesus, then you need to understand those things too. Because it's just not helpful for you or anyone else for me to try to con you into believing they don't exist. I mean, why do we work so hard? Why do we have to be right all the time? Why are we so worried about how we look? Because deep down, we know there's something wrong and we're trying to clean ourselves up. Tim Keller puts it this way. Imagine there's a widow who has a son and she puts this guy through grad school. She puts him through really nice private schools as he's growing up. And she's someone who's working really hard. She's someone of very slender means. And after this young man graduates and gets into his career, he cuts her off. Like he never speaks to her again, has anything else to do with her. What if you asked this guy about his relationship with his mom and his response was like, no, I don't have anything to do with her personally, but I always tell the truth and I work hard and I care for the poor. I live a good life. I follow the things she told me to do. That's all that matters, isn't it? Like, I don't think that would be a very satisfying answer for us. It's not enough for the man to have the moral life that his mother wished for him apart from that woman. That his behavior is not good because more than a moral life, she gave him everything that he has. He owes her his love. He owes her his loyalty. And if there's a God, then we owe him everything. That more than a morally decent life, he deserves to be the center of our life. Like even if you're a morally decent person, but you're not letting God be God to you, you're as guilty of sin as a very self-righteous person 
or very outwardly sinful, morally rebellious person. And the reason the good news of the gospel is prefaced by the reality of the bad news of our sin is that Jesus is really just kinder than we are. And he's willing to tell us the reality of our condition before God. And the beauty of the gospels, if you're willing to listen to them, is that Jesus will get in your face. He'll say the hardest things ever to you. And then he will love you in the way that you most need it. That he will give you his heart. Because did you know in the Bible there are really two judgment days? There's the one that's ahead that Jesus is talking about, warning people about. And then there's the first judgment. And it comes on Jesus. Because he is so aware of God's holiness and justice. And our sin and our injustice. That he allows us to die in our place and for all the judgment of God against sin. His wrath, his fury, his anger to fall upon him. So that on the cross, Jesus is treated as though he were the biggest sinner in the history of the world. Like the worst murderer, the worst thief, the most self-righteous, the greediest, the most sexually immoral person ever. Like judgment day falls on Jesus because he loves sinners. That he allows himself to be treated as the worst of the worst. So it doesn't fall on other people. His love for people so that they would escape God's wrath against sin fuels his mission to save them. And Christian mission is living in the reality of that first judgment and taking part in the life and the joy and the love of Jesus in order to warn of the reality of the second judgment. That there's no one who doesn't need this, no one to whom God won't give this if they would have it. That the heart of mission is that seeing that when the harvest was plentiful but the laborers were few, it's not that God needed some able-bodied folks and I raised my hand. But the heart of mission is seeing that God has done for me what I could not do for myself. That the center of God's mission and the mission of every Christian is Jesus nailed to a tree, dying for people who don't deserve it. I mean, just look at what Jesus tells his disciples when they come back from doing amazing missionary work for him. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Like, don't rejoice in whatever power God has given you for his kingdom. Getting wrapped up in power and power plays will destroy you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The fuel for mission is rejoicing in what God has done for you. And enjoying that and soaking in that and seeing God's love for you in Jesus. That he stands in your way between God's wrath and his love. So if that's the motivation for mission, what is the means of mission? What does this look like here at UNC? First of all, look at the things that Jesus tells these disciples to do. Pray earnestly. The word there is actually beseech all the time. Like constantly be asking. I'm seating you out as lambs among the wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. There to do mission from a place of being dependent on God and the protection that he provides. Greet no one on the road. It's not rude, it's urgent. Whatever house you enter into, first say, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the labor deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Okay, so you're eating with people. You're spending time with people. You don't move around from one house to another. You build deep relationships. Start with people of peace, folks that in God's province are already receptive to the gospel. Don't make this harder on yourself than you have to. What do we see here? That ministry is dependent on doing God, on God doing work. It's deeply relational. You're living and eating with people that you're serving. It honors those people and puts them ahead of yourself. It's not beating people up. It's not bullying people. It's not pe- making people feel terrible. It's loving and caring for people where they're at. What does this seem to be saying then? 
Do ministry with the people that you're closest to and that you connect with. Think about this for a minute for us. No one here has to leave campus to do ministry or to be missional or to think about what is their purpose in God's kingdom here. That this campus is an incredible place for us to learn how to live out the gospel together. That y'all stand at the crossroads of life, trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do, what kind of person you're going to become, wondering how. I mean, at no other time in life will you live as closely to people who don't believe the gospel. At no other time in life will you all be as open to hearing about Jesus and being shaped by Jesus as you are now. This means that you can have a great ministry to people around here and you can learn how to be a Christian and minister in a place where you're not speaking down to someone who's younger than you, but you're speaking across to someone who's your friend, your roommate, your peer, the person you study with. You know what I think this would really look like for us on campus? It's a phrase I didn't invent, but which has gotten a lot of traction in the last few years. It's called being faithfully present in our community. That faithful presence doesn't mean that we can sweep in and kind of save the day. And neither does it mean that we join a club and no one ever finds out what we believe. But being faithfully present means the the right question is not, how do we change the world? The right question is, how do we show up day in and day out and do good to the glory of God on this campus? What it means is that we seek to be a different sort of community here, and a different sort of people that we as Christians can offer to people as a new set of categories to live by and show them how to live. That we're not defined by our work. We're defined by God's work, which should make us gracious, humble people. That God has called you as, as a student here at Carolina, so you should write good papers. You should be honest on your lab reports. You should make good art in studio. You should be faithful to who God is, to the story that He's telling the world. That everyone is beautiful and created with incredible dignity. And everyone is broken by the fall and incredibly sinful. And that both those things are true for all of us. And that God's work on campus through RUF is to bring the healing love and care of Jesus into this world. And that should impact the way that we play intramurals. The way that we study in the library. The way that we rush in the Greek system. Our expectations that we have for ourselves and our friends. To some of y'all, I know this feels super daunting. Like, maybe you already feel like making, being a Christian makes you like an exile and like a big chunk of campus life. But you aren't called to minister to this campus alone. Like, Jesus sends people out in pairs. Communal mission is the way it's always been. Because we have different gifts, different abilities, different life stories, so that we can love different kinds of people and be involved in different sorts of people's lives. This is why community and RUF is such a big thing. So Christian, why are you here? Why are you here? To glorify God and the things that He's given you. Your intellect, your personality, your love of certain TV shows, your love of ball. (laughs) And enjoy God by being faithfully present on this campus. So here's some tips for doing mission at UNC. Just some things I've thought about in the last few years. Be involved in things that you like and that are worthy of your time. How that breaks down is something we all have to decide, but don't feel guilty about working hard and being involved in some things that are not specifically Christian. A lot of you are super high-functioning people, and that means you can do more than one thing at once. I don't have that ability. Some of you do. It's amazing to me. But as you do, ask yourself the question, how am I moving this towards God's kingdom? 
How am I bringing more of God's wisdom, His light, His love into this? And that can be your sorority house. That can be who you invite onto your I Am team. That can be you rallying for justice for our black brothers and sisters. But be wise about how you spend your time and do something worthy of your abilities. I don't feel like I have to say this that much, but don't just play video games, right? (laughs) Our goal in REF is not to make you as busy as possible with our ministry stuff. Our goal is to connect you with one another and help you to love Jesus as sincerely and truly as possible. Because I think that's the key to doing the Christian life in the long run and actually liking it. Look, unless you're committed to, like, on some of our most committed aspects of leadership, do not do on average more than two or three things a week with us. Don't. Don't do that. Be a student on campus. Join a community group. Come to a large group. Invite people to those things. But be shaped by the gospel and do your best to shape the communities that you're already a part of with the gospel. Live within your limits here, too. Take a Sabbath. Take a day of rest. Work hard and then rest. And if that means you have to do all your homework on Saturday, so be it, right? Taking a Sabbath and resting is one of the most countercultural things you can do at UNC. Especially on a campus of doers, our doing can be a mark of who we are. But what makes Christians different is that we're not defined by our doing, but our resting in Jesus and His work for us. And that ought to come out. That ought to shape us. All right, thirdly, be a part of a church and come to RUF. Like, we are not a church. And I get the question sometimes, how can I both be involved in a church and be involved in RUF? I want to be missional. All right, if you're involved in RUF, you're involved in the work of the church, but we can't give you the sacraments. I'm an ordained minister. I can do sacraments at churches, but I can't do sacraments here. That's part of our polity. Uh, We can't give you the elderly. We can't give you the very young. We can't give you young professionals in their 30s. Um, go to a church that has those things. Go to a church that preaches the gospel, that gives the sacrament, sacraments. If you're part of RUF, then you're part of the work of the church at UNC, though. Our job here is not to transform culture, but to be God's people. And to honor God as a Redeemer and Lord in every aspect of our lives. And help thoughtful, deeply feeling people here the people of peace that Jesus is talking about at this place, connect the dots on why they love the things that they love, why they get so inflamed over injustice, why they so deeply long for meaning. Because there are some brilliant people here who are thoughtful, who feel deeply about our campus, and whose souls get provoked by those things, and they also just turn away at the cynicism they see in the world, and they simply need categories to connect what they love with why they love it, to a reason that exists beyond themselves and what they can see. Like, they need to connect the truth and the grace and the hope of Jesus with what they love. And we all know people like that. Like, what if God has put you here to help those people? Use the structures REF's given you. Large group, where someone is standing up and talking about Jesus so that you don't have to be that person all the time, right? Go to community groups and talk about what it means to live as a as in community here, and love Jesus and love one another. Do our service activities and love our community and give something to people that you will get nothing from. But love and connect to one another and connect to the God of love. Work and be involved and seek the good of this place, and in so doing, bring more of the reign of Jesus into one of the places that you love, into UNC. 
and bring it into the lives of the people that you love at UNC. Your friends, your sorority, your fraternity, your professors. But be salt and light here. I'll end with this. Uh, a few years ago, I guess now 25 or 30 years ago, there's a man named, uh, forgive me on this name, Vaclav Havel. Um, he's a Czech writer, a poet, a dissident, and he helped lead his country out of the Soviet era into um, democracy. And as he do, is doing this, people ask, how is this like a bloodless revolution? Like it's been called the Velvet Revolution, the General Revolution. How was that? Because normally that's not how it happens in this part of war- the world. And his response was amazing. He said, we had a parallel society. And in our society, we told our stories, we sang our songs, until we finally stepped out into the streets of Prague and we said, we don't believe your lies anymore. And the old regime fell. Do you know what we're doing right now? We're singing our songs, we're telling our stories, we're being a new community of people faithfully present on this campus. And, we he- and when we hear those voices howl inside of us that say, it doesn't matter that you invite somebody to a large group. It doesn't matter that you have a lunch or you introduce your Christian and your non-Christian friends. It doesn't matter that you run for the SGA. It doesn't matter that you tutor a child or that you pray out loud in your community group. Whether that voice is from the inside or the outside, do you know what RUF is? It is us believing the gospel and stepping out into our classes and our dorms and saying, we don't believe your lies anymore. Jesus shall reign. For the sake of this place, for the sake of the people that I love, Jesus shall reign. And that's my invitation to you, to take part in that reign, to invite people into it, to love people where they're at, to be salt and light in a place that matters a ton to you. Because the reality is that if Jesus is who he says that he is, that he wants to redeem this place, he wants to redeem these people, that he loves this place, and he wants to transform it, and he can use us for that. And that's my hope for RUF. That's my hope for y'all. I think that's my hope for myself. So let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would help us to know your son Jesus. To know his reign. To know his transformative power. To know his love. Um, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just busy ourselves with a lot of religious stuff. But that we would know his, his love in our hearts. That we would rest in him. That we would trust him. God, that you would work in us in such a way that it just flows out of um, who we are. The truth of the gospel, the love of the gospel, into our friends, into our classes, into our uh, other clubs. Lord, that your love, your reign would come into UNC and these places and these people we love the most. Would you grant us that in Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen.